I, I grew up in a, you know, what I thought was an egalitarian household uh, and what I thought was an egalitarian society. And I think that little by little, I began to discover that it was not as, <laughs> as egalitarian as I thought. So, so my father is 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 is, a, is, is very famous in his he's like sort of a celebrity. He's a very well known poet, national poet. Um, but for me, as a child, both my parents were very impressive. My mother was like this extremely impressive educator who knew so much about education, and her presence in my life was so meaningful. So I think that. While growing up, I didn't realize because if if I'm thinking of my parents and them serving as role models for me, it was equal because they were equally, their presence in my life was equally formative. So I guess it was later in life when I began to look at everything, including my own life and my own family and my own household through a gender that you realize that even that most households, including our very own, are not quite fully egalitarian. That was Hamatal Gori. Hamatal is a powerhouse in the gender rights world in Israel. Last year she was invited to Australia to speak at Limud Oz about feminist philanthropy and gender rights in Israel. I met with her during her visit, and she painted a complex picture with some good news and some bad news. Today we're going to hear some of that conversation. This is The Gender Agenda, and I'm Dalit Kaplan. I'm from Jerusalem. I live in Kiryat Yuvel. And Hamutal is what is referred to in Israel as a real Tzabra. That's a Jew born in Israel with a slightly feisty disposition. And her family's history is deeply intertwined with the state's history. So my father was born in Israel. His parents, Israel and Gila, um, Guri or Gurfinkel. Um, they came in 19, I think it was 1914, um, on the Roslan, which is the same boat that brought um, Ben Gurion to the land of, to Palestine, Eretz Israel. Uh, they were both, you know, Zionists. My um, From where? From Russia. So my paternal grandfather was a member of Knesset. Um, he was chair of the finance committee. Um, 
And so, yes, my father was born in Tel Aviv in 1923. My mother came from Poland when she was very little. She was, I think, uh, less than three years old. And her family then um, lived in Jerusalem. And my parents met when they were both um, Palmach, Palmachniks. Uh, they met and fell in love in 1948 during the war, and then they both moved to um, Jerusalem to study at Hebrew University. So Hamotal was always going to be involved in public life. So let's start by me really not having a choice but to end up doing social change work. I think that growing up in the family I grew up in, um, my mother is an educator, my father is a writer and poet, and and I think that Mine, our family was always a very political family. We always had these, you know, heated political discussions around the table. And I think we're a family of highly politically and culturally engaged people. <laughs> so um, everything was very conscient, very conscientious I guess so so our family was a um, culturally Jewish family so every Friday evening there would be you know um, Kabbalat Shabbat that my parents planned very carefully and thinking actively about what it means to be a culturally Jewish family rather than you know an observant Orthodox family um, and so I think that I I grew up um, being committed to social and political awareness and to never never keep silent or never sort of disengage from the commitment to make Israeli society the best that it can be. So, while social justice was always going to be a large part of Hamutal's life, feminism came a bit later. I was not born a feminist, and I think um, sort of being disenchanted with the sort of equality bluff was, I guess, a transformative experience. But I think that I grew up in a, you know, what I thought was an egalitarian household. Uh, and what I thought was an egalitarian society. And I think that little by little, I began to discover that it was not as, <laughs> as egalitarian as I thought. But I think that, you know, it just, my discomfort with the exclusion of women or with some of the messages I was getting as a child or as a teenager or even when I was uh, in the army... Um, it didn't have a name to it. And I think that what made my feminist journey so empowering, I guess, and so transformative for me is that it gave a name and a theoretical and a conceptual and a practical context and framework to many of the things that I felt, and they just didn't have a name. 
Do you remember when you first began to realise that your household wasn't as egalitarian as you thought? Ah. What was that? What What was that aha moment? Hmm. I'm not. You know, I'm not sure because so so my father is 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 a, is is very famous in Israel. He's like sort of a celebrity. He's a very well-known poet. He's like a national poet. Um but for me as a child, both my parents were very impressive. My mother was like this extremely impressive educator who knew so much about education and her presence in my life was so meaningful. So I think that while growing up, I didn't realize because if if I'm thinking of my parents and them serving as role models for me, it was equal because they were equally, their presence in my life was equally formative. So I guess it was later in life when I began to look at everything, including my own life and my own family and my own household through a gender lens that you realize that even that most households including our very own are not quite fully egalitarian I guess it's a puzzle though isn't it I mean even if you you embrace feminism and you claim and you you identify as a feminist it, it's a puzzle exactly how to implement that on a practical level. I don't think that we really have the answers yet. Well, it's true. and Sorry, I mean in our own personal life, yeah. not on a, broader, on a broader level. Well, actually both. Okay. It's actually both because, um, yes, it's tricky because, you know, feminism, so we believe the personal is the political. So it all goes back to our personal experiences, our lives, etc. That's very true. For me, I think the most powerful thing about feminism or feminisms is a woman's right to make choices all the time. So I guess that as a heterosexual woman who shares her life with a man, and I mean, we've been together for 19 years, and we raise our children, and I mean, I love, I love having my family. I mean, I, I love my partner. I, I love having a family. Uh, and then being a feminist means that sometime, you know, I, I get to be the designated gender nudge. And and I get to raise the tempest over you know how our lives um, how you know how our lives are conducted on a daily basis, um, etc. But I th I think that it's a journey, and I think that even a devout feminist such as myself, and you know, we're allowed to every day make active choices about you know our mothering about our parenting about how we want to run the household um so yes my partner certainly washes less dishes than i do and he certainly does less cooking than i do but i wouldn't be able to be here in australia and away from home for two weeks if he wasn't the number one friend who's so committed 
to my career, to my public activism, to my public career, to whatever it is that I'm doing in my life. So I, I think that it's a journey. It, it's a dance. You know what? It's a dance. Um, it's and we're learning as we as we go along. So in addition to being the self-appointed family gender nudge, Hamutal is the managing director of the Jaffna Fund. The heart of my work and the work of my heart, I am the executive director of the Jaffna Fund. It's um, Israel's first and only feminist fund. We were established 12 years ago by Professor Daphne Israeli. May her memory be a blessing. Um, she was a feminist scholar and activist, professor of sociology. She started the gender studies program at Bar-Ilan University and was amongst the founding mothers of Israel Women's Network, which is one of Israel's first and leading women's rights advocacy groups. Israeli studied everything to do with women's positions in Israeli society. She researched women in the workplace, in the family, in the army, and she basically invented the academic discipline of gender studies in Israel. She gathered extensive data about the appointment of female executives to boards and institutions, and she got to know Israeli sexism more intimately than most. Tragically, she died of breast cancer when she was only 65, but Israeli left an endowment of $1 million to the New Israel Fund to establish Israel's first feminist fund. And thus the Daphna Fund was born. What we do is we promote um, impact-oriented feminist leadership and feminist mainstreaming by providing grants to innovative programs initiated by feminist organizations. We also provide capacity building and helping our grantee partners and other feminist groups in Israel with their development and fundraising. Um, and we're also working to introduce the concept of gender-sensitive philanthropy or funding with a gender lens to the Israeli philanthropic um, community. Okay, let me set the scene for you. If you know anything about Jewish history, then you'd know that the modern state of Israel was built largely through philanthropy. And while philanthropy sounds like a fairly neutral term, it has always been deeply ideological, especially when it comes to historical Palestine and the modern state of Israel. From the 17th to the 19th century, Jews living in Palestine largely relied on funds collected from communities throughout the world. It was called Chalukah money and it was collected by special emissaries sent out from the Holy Land, basically to beg. They described the depravity and hardship in Palestine, hunger, illness, hostile authorities and so on. 
Money was also being collected at the same time by proto-Zionist organisations like Lovers of Zion. But they would also appeal to the world Jewry's sense of the duty to support Jews in the Holy Land. The belief was that diaspora Jews had an obligation to give Jews in Palestine money and support. Additionally, there were wealthy Jews, like Moses Montefiore and Baron Edmund de Rothschild, and they had begun to invest large amounts of money into the Jewish communities in Palestine. They built infrastructure, workshops, even cities, and bought up large swaths of land, mostly from the local Arabs. These early philanthropists believed in settling more Jews in Palestine. It wasn't about providing charity to poor Jews who had been living in the Holy Land for generations, but rather about building new self-sustaining Jewish communities filled with Jewish immigrants from all over the world. Then by the early 20th century, we saw the rise of the large charities that are household names in the State of Israel today. The Jewish National Fund or JNF, the American Joint Distribution Committee, known as the Joint, United Israel Appeal or UIA. These were all based in the diaspora and they were all devoted to building the infrastructure of a fledgling Jewish state in British mandated Palestine. They bought land, built settlements, financed infrastructure, funded immigration, and provided services to the Jews living there. Their business was state building for Jews. And this ideology continued to dominate well after the state was established. Money poured into Israel, largely from the diaspora, to support immigration, infrastructure building, and to alleviate poverty, the Jews living there. Then in the 70s, there was a shift. There was an explosion of social justice organisations, and they were much more diverse in their agendas. In fact, civil society in Israel as a whole became much more diverse. Rather than building a society from scratch, there was more of a focus on improving society according to a certain set of values. Many focused on specific issues or populations, like minority rights. New foundations and philanthropic organisations emerged as well, still mostly funded by Jews in the diaspora. But now they were faced with a complex array of organisations with different approaches vying for their funds. The foundations had to be strategic in deciding who and how they should fund. Enter organisations like the Daphne Fund. You're listening to The Gender Agenda, and I'm Dalit Kaplan. Thank <laughs> you. 
מיותרות, השמאל עוזר לערבים, בקו ליהודים, פושעי אוסלו לדים, אנחנו כאן, הם שם, אחים לא מבטירים, עקירת יישובים, מפלגת את העם, מוות לבוגרים, תנו לחיות לחיות, This is the Gender Agenda and I'm Dalit Kaplan. Today we're chatting with Hamutal Guri, who is tackling gender issues in Israeli society with her foundation, the Daphna Fund. Hamutal is the CEO of the Daphna Fund. And the Daphna Fund is part of a new generation of philanthropic organizations that aim to address social justice issues in Israel. The fund gives grants specifically to organizations that are advancing gender mainstreaming and gender equality for all women in Israel. Okay, so um, I think that one of, you know, a feminist practice is, is to recognize that we're always, and all of us are standing on the shoulders of, of giants. And so, so when the Daphne Fund was established, this was after, I think, certainly the New Israel Fund and U.S. Israel Women to Women and National Council of Jewish Women, as well as non-Jewish foundations, have supported for at least two decades, you know, the, the founding and sort of fostering of the feminist arena. So when the Daphne Fund was established, we knew that, A, we were standing on the shoulders of giants who have funded, as funders, who have funded, uh, you know, the bargaining and then the establishment of the feminist arena. And so um, we knew... Uh, from the very beginning, that we wanted to build the next floor of feminism, feminist action in Israel. And so we were looking to really fund innovative, risk-taking, even like what may seem like off-the-wall ideas to promote impact-oriented feminist leadership and feminist mainstreaming. And so... We, our funding guidelines are based on four core values, which is partnership, you know, between feminist organizations and mainstream organizations, mentoring, um, feminist mentoring, networking, because networks are just so important for political action, and then diversity, meaning commitment to really cater to the needs and concerns of all of Israel's communities. I want, to, I want to really dig into these concepts. Oh. What is gender mainstreaming? Okay, so very simply put, gender mainstreaming um, is actually the new term now internationally used to replace women in development or women and, women and development. And it's, it's about considering the needs and concerns of women and girls as well as those of men and boys. I always like to add to it, not only considering needs and concerns, but also the unique assets and contributions of women and girls and those of men and boys. Um, feminist mainstreaming actually means introducing feminist theory, diverse feminist theory, and practices into 
mainstream institutions. The Daphne Fund focuses heavily on promoting female leadership. Now, not a day goes by when you don't hear something about women and leadership in the papers. And why shouldn't we? Only 22% of all national parliamentarians were female in 2015. Only 13 women served as head of state in 2015. Women are underrepresented in management positions, in senior positions in academia, medicine and so on. And while I obviously believe women should occupy more leadership roles, I can't help but feel a bit cynical about this obsession with leadership. Why are we only looking at the leadership rung? What about everybody else? I asked Hamutal about this. So promoting leadership is a big part of your work. But what does leadership mean to you? Maybe not everybody wants to be a CEO or a politician. Does that mean that they're not feminists or they're not good leaders? Well, I, for one, do not want to be a politician, for sure. Um, No, leadership... Look, leadership is not just about holding a formal position. Positional power is actually one of at least 10 or even more types of power we can have. Um, So no, it's not just about being a politician or about being a senior executive. Um, Actually, I'm thinking of leadership more in terms of responsibility and impact. And leadership, not so much as a position or a formal position, but more as a state of mind. Because I think we can all step in and out of leadership. And actually, a, a dear friend of mine and a, and a um, fellow facilitator uh, said in one of the sessions that we had that leadership can actually sometimes mean knowing how to follow and be an ally. And so we're really thinking of leadership in a really, in a very broad way, um, that it's really about having an opportunity to exercise responsibility, um, to exercise agency, to have our voices heard, to be part of shaping our society and our communities. Um, And I think, you know, I think every decade has its buzzwords, and so leadership was a big buzzword. I think you know through the two, you know, the first decade of the twenty first century for sure, and and I guess now impact is the buzzword for this decade, and who knows what the buzzword for the next one will be. But I think that what we're constantly learning is that leadership is not a goal in and of itself. It's a tool. It's a vehicle for creating influence. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. How 
examples of unconventional leadership or the sorts of leadership that you're talking about that's not necessarily just positional leadership? I'm thinking of some of the inspiring women leaders I had the privilege and pleasure of meeting and working with and being friends with. It's about passion. Oftentimes it's about personal drive. Uh, so, for example, I have a dear friend back in Jerusalem. She's one of the leaders of the Ma'abara, um, and she was one of the leaders of the sort of the single mothers in Jerusalem um, fighting for affordable and public housing. And so it was her personal story that pushed her to the streets in the first place. But then she discovered that she had power and that she could mobilize and that she could inspire people. And so she is now helping so many people, both women and men, who are in danger of being evicted. Or um, So she she's helping uh, people exercise their rights and their entitlements. So I, I think that the most important thing, I think one of the important things that civil society and you know social change organizations can and should do is offer opportunities for people to stand up and exercise their leadership, um, their passion, um, you know, put their issues on the table. You know, my issues may be very different than Etty, this friend of mine, who's, you know, a single mom um, that is not eligible for public housing, is on very partial um, health, uh, you know, social security stipend and is not allowed to work more than three hours a day. And somehow they're expecting her to make ends meet. And of course, it's impossible. And so... This goes back to, I think, saying, so here's a woman I'm inspired by and I'm willing to follow her leadership and support her in her agenda, not because my issues are exactly the same, because if, if she gets to promote her agenda, we all benefit. We benefit from women in leadership. We benefit from a better, you know, social security system. Uh, we all benefit. So for me, being a Jewish, Ashkenazi, educated, middle-class feminist, feminist um, I, I, I don't really pay a price for being an active feminist. 
I mean, my family may pay price, me being the gender nudge, but I, I don't run risks. Now, it's very different for women in, in, say, traditional communities or in communities where women are really expected to be relegated to the very private sphere and not step up and, you know, be part of communal leadership. And so, so when we started the fund and we said we want to support women in leadership positions in the public sphere, we said the public sphere is wherever these women define it. Okay? So if they say, I want to be on the parents committee because there are no women on the parents committee and so I have no say with regards to my children's education or to my girls' education, um, that's political leadership. This is the Gender Agenda and I'm Diane Kaplan. Today we're chatting with feminist activist Hamut Hafguri. Right now, every nation in the West has put gender rights at the top of its national agenda. In fact, almost every nation in the world is talking the talk to some degree. We are talking about pay gaps, childcare, violence, political and economic leadership. But Israel has its own unique set of issues. And according to Hamutal, there is good news and bad news. So we're going to move to your work in Israel and the Israeli context. Can you paint for me a picture of the gender landscape in Israel right now? What are some of the biggest challenges? Wow. Okay. So when it comes to the gender picture about Israel, and I guess around the world, but in Israel, there's the good news and then there's the bad news. So I guess the good news is um, that, it, first of all, Israel has a thriving and a very pluralistic and diverse feminist arena. There are several dozen organizations. They tend to be very small and with small budgets, and yet they manage to do remarkable work. Um, and the feminist arena is really representative of a very broad spectrum of identities. So, you know, both Jewish and Palestinian organizations, uh, organizations of Orthodox women, um, sort of Mizrahi women, or the Israeli, I guess, equivalent of feminism of color, um, Bedouin feminism. So very diverse, very rich um, and quite effective. And so this movement, and this is part of the good news, this movement over the years was able to make really landmark achievements. Um, whether it's, you know, introducing the sexual assault legislation um, or um, more recently introducing um, gender, mandatory gender analysis of... Um, state ministries, like the different government ministries, or um, a, a decade or so ago introducing, leg sort of expanding on the Gender or Equality B Act um, to introduce the concept of um, having fair and diverse representation for women in all decision-making mechanisms. So we have some great laws 
Uh, and that's part of the good news. Then the not so good news is that first of all, enforcement um, very often is is absent or non-existent. And so very often we will have this great piece of legislation, but then organizations have to invest, you know, efforts in monitoring and sort of making sure that these laws get um, enforced. I think that if we look sort of the macro picture of what are the challenges for gender equality in Israel, so first of all, the lack of separation between, I would guess, religion and politics and religion and state and the fact that, you know, Rabbanut, the rabbinette, has a stronghold on all aspects of Jewish life, including personal status, etc., represents a great challenge for gender equality. Um, I think the other piece is that we are um, a nation in that's in, in conflict, or depends how you want to describe it, but certainly because um, military uh, and you know is so central to the Israeli experience and the whole issue of security is so central, um, and that's a male-dominated area and very much a macho-dominated area, and women are completely excluded from conversations. Um, on Could I ask you specifically, why is that? Why are women excluded from the conversations? Well, look, first of all, if, if, if you look at all women in Israel, not just Jewish secular women, so security conversations in Israel are perceived to be the realm of generals, and generals are men. Uh, there, there, there's maybe one or two women generals, um, very few women in senior IDF uh, leadership. And so since security is kind of perceived as the realm of generals, women, all women, are excluded. But then if you think about, you know, Palestinian Arab uh, citizens, so they're clearly excluded, but also many religious women, because a lot of, you know, many Jewish religious women will not serve in the military. They will do a shnat or an alternative, women with disabilities, or conscientious, Jewish conscientious objectors, or so... Once the security conversation is framed so that it includes primarily generals and former generals, almost all women are excluded. <laughs> In 2014, Israel spent at least 7.4% of its GDP on the military. Now compare that with Australia, which spends around 1.8% of its GDP on the military. So whoever drives the security agenda in Israel has a lot of influence in that country as a whole. But Hamutal says the security is too narrowly defined. Women have a lot to say about security. They just have different things to say about security. So a couple of years ago, a coalition of feminist organizations, both Jewish and Palestinian, did this wonderful survey um, on women's concepts of security. 
and they interviewed both Jewish and Palestinian women, Russian olot, Mizrahi women, Ashkenazi women, sort of um, also across, sort of across, you know, ethnicity, national, not nationality because they were all Israelis, but ethnicity and religion and class. Um, and not surprising, but for all women, all women interviewed, the Iranian threat was not amongst the top five security concerns as women. Um, and for different women, different things represented security threats, but none of it was about Iran or the conflict. It was about... Uh, so Palestinian w women were most concerned with being expelled from their homes and their land. Um, Russian olot were most concerned with loneliness at old age. Um, many women were concerned with financial, economic insecurity. And all women shared, all women across classes, shared a concern for their physical well-being and fear of violence or any form of assault. And, and this was the point that I always found the most touching is that all women shared sort of concern for their loved ones, for their health and well-being. And, and so women are not asked. And, and to, the truth is men are not asked about what constitutes security for you. And I think that if men were to be asked the same questions, they will also say, you know, I worry about the future. Will I be able to provide for my children? Um, I'm not sure that men would say that Iran was one of their top five. So I, I think that as long as security is perceived in such a narrow and limiting and limited way as, you know, having to do with military strategies, women, but a lot of men as well, will, will simply be excluded from the conversation. Still, the military is an integral part of Israeli and Palestinian life. Conflict is everywhere. Everyone knows someone who is serving in the army on the Jewish side. And if you're Arab or Palestinian, the military and violence pervade every aspect of life. You can't go to the shops without encountering someone with a gun. It made me wonder, what sort of effect does this have on society as a whole. Women are affected by conflict, actually in more ways than men are affected, especially with, you know, since in recent years, uh, the conflict has been about affecting civil communities rather than just, you know, military, you know, combat. Can you unpack that a bit? Well, so if you look... 
I think certainly since Second Lebanon War, 2006. But look at what look at what is happening in our southern border in Sderot and you know the whole uh, the communities around Gaza, around Gaza. Um, these are civil com- Jewish civil communities and and also Bedouin communities in the Negev that are being affected. Um, you know that you know for the la- more than a decade, you know the you know Qassam missiles that are um, fired mostly on you know southern communities in in the Negev. They affect civil communities, and then when Israel retaliates, it Palestinian civil communities are also affected. And so it, it, I'm thinking when I was growing up, um, I was like really young during Six Day War in '67, but I can I but I can still remember. And then in '73, I can so we had to go down to the bomb shelter. But the story was my father actually was still in active duty. I can't believe that. Um, but so the men went out to the front and the elderly, the women and the children um, stayed in the bombshells. But the war was, and, and we could hear the bombings, etc. but the war was taking place someplace else and we were in bombshells. Now it's, it's very different because civilian communities on both sides are being directly affected and 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 it there's not an army on the other side it's so warfare has changed tremendously um to the degree that civilian communities both on our side and on the palestinian side are severely affected i remember coming across a study and and i'm sure there are plenty like this um that looks at instances of domestic violence during times of war, in particular in the Palestinian communities, um, that the experience of occupation um, has a particular impact on boys and then as they grow up and and seeing seeing their own parents being humiliated by, Mm. um, by young boys who are in the Israeli army, has a particular impact on their own tendencies towards violence and their treatment of women and children in the long term. Well, I don't. I I, I think you know violence against women goes back to patriarchy and the treatment of women as part of the family assets, and it goes back to abusive men having endured violence um, in childhood by the hands of their fathers or other family members. I mean, I I think that what we do see is during war or in an escalation in in war, um, there is a rise in domestic violence on the Jewish side as well. Um, I think that war sort of opens all the wounds of post- trauma. And so, and, and because, you know, families, like, no one can go out to work in the South, for example. Um, so in the Negev, in the Southern communities, so no one can go out to work. So everybody's at home. Um, and it's like a pressure cooker. And so, yes, there is an, a rise in domestic violence on both the Jewish and the Palestinian side. And if on a national level, 
violence is um, acceptable, then one can't help but assimilate that into how they conduct themselves every day. It's legitimate. It's we're using violence legitimately on a political level, and and you can't create a you know a Chinese wall, as they say, a, a distinct you know dis- you you can't necessarily separate that from how you think about your how you go about your business every day as well. I I agree. I think that yes, I think that our our society is violent. And, and that's certainly, but you can say that's also about how people conduct themselves on the road or, you know, on the line in the bank and et, et cetera. So yes, I think that, again, in a society that is still so much caught up in, in military and is sort of this kind of military macho culture, clearly um, it affects other other areas of, of our life. This is The Gender Agenda and I'm Dalit Kaplan. Today we're chatting with feminist activist Hamutal Guri about her work in Israel. But Hamutal also wears another hat and that is the hat of storyteller. I, I love stories my entire life. I always love stories. I like listening to stories. I like telling stories. Um, but I think that I, I began to research storytelling as a vehicle for social transformation uh, a little over a decade ago. It, it actually started with me writing a, an academic paper about the power of folk tales um, in healing processes of women and children who were victims of sexual abuse. Um, I called it Once Upon a Time uh, and the Truth Shall Set You Free or something like that. But it, it was basically, I think, grounded in a, in a concept that I, I really believe in, that is that change happens when silence is broken. And it's true for the individual, and it's also true for communities and societies. And so I st- it started with more of an academic or a theoretical exploration of how folk tales can be conducive to healing processes. And then, but it wasn't until, I think, 2009, I was in Oakland. I was in California, actually. Um, for a Rockwood leadership training seminar. The first evening, we were standing in a circle, and we were asked to say, what is my purpose? And we had no time to prepare, so there was no rehearsing. It was just whatever. And I was standing there with 23 other people I just met, and I heard myself say, my purpose is... Um, to um, make sure that unheard voices are heard. And I was like, did I just say that? Mm-hmm. But then, yes, it made all the sense in the world because this is, this is what I've been doing. And, and, and so uh, from, from then onward, what I really dedicated much of my 
well, non-existent free time, to doing is um, creating, first of all, doing my own writing about um, storytelling for social change, um, reading a lot and accumulating a great library on storytelling for social change, um, and, and developing training modules and lectures and um, interactive workshops to train people in basically um, identifying great stories and also, uh, most importantly, I think, telling their own stories. What's your favorite story? Mm. Today, what's your favorite story today? No, so... Um, so actually, like the meta story, the story that goes with me everywhere as a storyteller is from a book called From the Beast of the Blonde by Marina Warner. And it's, it's, it's a story that is called I Feed Her the Tongue's Meat. And it's actually a story about the wife of a king who's very sick. She's very poorly. She's like, she's very sick. She's losing weight. She has no appetite. She's extreme. She's depressed. Um, and then there's the peasant who lives in the, you know, who's a servant to the king. And his wife is like healthy and thriving and happy. And so the king asks his servant, what is the secret of his wife's happiness? And he says, I feed her the tongue's meat. And so the king thinks he's feeding her, you know, um, the tongues of animals. So he sends his hunters out to hunt the animals and the cook to prepare the tongues, you know, as a, as a delicacy. And he serves it to his wife and she continues to do very poorly and she's just depressed and has no appetite. And then he's really... Um, in despair and so the peasant the servant says why don't you bring your wife over to our house and then lo and behold a week or two later the king's wife is thriving and her cheeks are red and she's happy and she has appetite and so the conclusion sort of the Musar Haskell of the story is that the king failed to understand that what the peasant was doing, he was telling the, his wife stories. He wrapped her in language. He chased her melancholy and her sadness and her depression away by telling her stories. And so this became a formative text for me um, because both in terms of my very personal, intimate experiences in life, that, you know, transfer, change and healing can happen when we chase silence away, when we wrap ourselves and our loved ones with, with language that is nurturing, that is healing. <laughs> That was Hamutal Guri, feminist Israeli activist, head of the Daphna Fund and storyteller, making unheard voices heard. Today you heard the music of Eti Ankri, Eitan Freilich, Kutar Tukan playing Bach, Shuli Natan and Rav Choval, Hadag Nachash and Achinoam Nimi. 
You've been listening to The Gender Agenda, and I'm Dalit Kaplan. <laughs>